All right. Guys, you can go ahead and wrap up those conversations. I know, it's so fun to everybody be in the same room, guys, right? Yeah, welcome to the other half of Salt Company. So there's more than just either freshmen or upperclassmen. So yeah, guys, thanks for joining us tonight. I'm super pumped to open up God's word with you guys. And especially if you are new to us or this is your first time here, I just wanna say welcome. Seriously, glad you came. Um, we would love to meet you. Come find me, come find one of our other staff members after we'd love to hear your name, get to know you a little bit. So. Hey, if you guys have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts. Um, I'm gonna be continuing in our Acts series that Stephen kicked off last Thursday, and we continued kind of last weekend at the Send Retreat, which how many of you guys were at the Send Retreat? <laughs> Wasn't it amazing? Guys, I had an awesome weekend there, and it was so fun to kind of go with this theme of to the ends of this earth. And so Acts is about, it's a story about how the church unfolds. <laughs> All right, and so this gospel message, the glory of God and the message that there is salvation of Jesus Christ, we believe that that is so important. And it's so important that it shouldn't just stay here, but it should go to the ends of the earth. And we're not only believe that, but we're commanded to take it to the ends of the earth. And Christians for years and years have been obeying this command. And we call those people missionaries, people that go and take the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. I don't know if you know any of these names, um, but there's people who not only live for Jesus in the gospel, but die for him too. Martyrs, we call them, like Jim Elliott, who was speared to death in Ecuador after he was trying to share the gospel with a native tribe, or William Tyndale, who was burned alive simply for translating the Bible into a language that people could read. John Rogers, also burned alive for refusing to repent of his belief that salvation is through Christ alone and not through the church or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed in a Nazi army camp after starting a Christian movement in Nazi Germany. All right, these like Christians laid down their lives for the gospel. But here's the thing, being a martyr or laying down your life for the gospel, that's not unique to like these super Christians. In fact, Christians for centuries have been giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. Christians over the years have been beaten, tortured, imprisoned, and eventually killed because of their faith in Jesus. In fact, the Bible commands us to do things like put your flesh to death. Jesus tells us, hey, if you don't hate your life, you cannot follow me or take up your cross and follow me. Those are commands in the Bible. And my question for you is this, is it worth it? All those people going to their deaths for what they believe all these people giving up their lives for the sake of Jesus, what are they dying for? And is it worth it? And tonight in Acts chapter six, we actually see the very first Christian martyr. And so as we kind of read this story and unpack it, I want those two questions to be rattling around in your heads. What are these martyrs dying for? And is it worth it? Is our Christian faith, is what we read in the Bible worth not only living for, but dying for too? All right, look with me at Acts chapter six, verse one, it says this. It says, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there rose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And so the 12 summoned the whole company of disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God, to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole company. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on him. All right, so here's what's going on right now. The early church is just starting to form. It was just a few short years ago that Jesus Christ literally came back from the dead. Amen? Amen. He's alive. These people have been witnesses to the fact that they saw Jesus come back and they were spreading this message all over the world. All right, and they were gathering in groups called churches. But the thing is, Christianity and kind of that message was not well received in that world. In fact, they were being outcasted. They were being like persecuted. And so people who were in poverty, people who couldn't afford to support themselves, they were getting no outside help from the government. They were getting no handouts from the public. And so everybody who was in poverty, everybody who couldn't take care of themselves like the widows had to be dealt with in the church. And so for whatever reason, whether it was because the church was full of people from a bunch of different backgrounds or whether it was just like a bad system that wasn't working, widows weren't getting fed. People who couldn't support themselves needed help and they weren't doing that. And so the apostles, it's not that they didn't care about it. They just value the word of God and preaching so much. And so what they do is they say, hey, appoint seven men full of the spirit and full of wisdom to do this, right? All right, and so this pleases the crowd and among other people, they choose a man named Stephen, who's gonna be the main character of our story tonight. And Stephen, and the author keeps special attention to say two things about Stephen. What does it say in verse five? It says, a man full of faith and a man full of the Holy Spirit. All right, and so Stephen agrees to this. After they had like, hey, he needs to have a good reputation, needs to be full of wisdom for faith. Like Stephen is kind of like built up as this like awesome guy that has some wisdom, that has some strength. And then he's like, hey, you go take care of widows. All right, it's kind of like a thankless, behind the scenes, doesn't seem very important job, right? He's basically the soup kitchen guy. He's like, there's nothing special about Stephen. So when I was in elementary school, we had this thing, uh, snack time every day. Anybody else have snack time in elementary? That was great. I need more snack times in my life today. But so we had snack time in elementary school and for, we we're supposed to bring our snacks from home, but for every student that was on free and reduced lunch, they would get a snack brought to them by Mr. Monty. All right, and Mr. Monty was the man. All right, he was kind of this like mid-50s, long, scraggly beard type guy that was just a janitor at the school that would bring, he wasn't even the head janitor. He was in charge of nothing. He just like, his main thing at the school was to bring these like kids who couldn't afford their own snacks, their snacks. All right, nothing special about him. All right, Stephen is Mr. Monty. All right, he's the guy that's just bringing the handouts to people and it seems almost worthless. Like if this guy really is, if he's so full of the spirit, if he has all these gifts, if he's so full of wisdom, then why would he do such a meaningless, like lowly task? Why is he in charge of the food line? Like, why isn't he pastoring? Why isn't he leading like the other apostles? Shouldn't he have some level of leadership or authority if he's so gifted? Guys, the kingdom of God does not work like our world does. There is a false reality that most of the world believes that to have any sort of value or worth or significance, you need to have some level of leadership or authority. And that if you don't have leadership, if you don't have authority, if you're not influencing other people, then that means you don't have value. 
or you're not as worthy as other people. And I'm telling you, that's not a Christian concept. You will find that nowhere in the Bible. In fact, you find just the opposite. And it's a really freeing truth. It's the truth that Jesus tells us in Matthew 20, 26 and 27, when he says, it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Guys, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, if you want to have worth in the eyes of God and in heaven, it's not a race to the top, but a race to the bottom. Because greatness in the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with how much leadership, authority, or what position you have, but actually how much are you willing to serve? Because I don't have more significance or worth in the kingdom of God simply because I'm up here with a microphone. All right, you know who actually has value in the kingdom of God? Right now, it's probably James, who is sitting back there in the sound booth. Everybody look at him. <laughs> and he's probably hate, James can clap, yes. And James is probably hating his life right now because everybody's looking at him and he wishes he wasn't in the spotlight. Guys, but whether you know it or not, James shows up every single week, hours early to Salt Company to practice running slides so you guys can have lyrics while you sing. That's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. Greatness in the kingdom of God looks like Aaron Ziskowski, who has been a faithful member of Salt Company. Aaron Ziskowski, is he even here? Oh, there he is, all right. Aaron Ziskowski, he's led in Candeo Youth, and he stays after every night to help us with chairs. That's what greatness looks like. Greatness in the kingdom of God looks like Rachel and Mackenzie, roommates, though they aren't on leadership, they, don't, they are new to our ministry, even as freshmen are choosing to give up their Sunday mornings to serve in the nursery and hold people's kids so that their parents can come worship in the service undivided. Guys, yes, you guys are killing it. Greatness in the kingdom of God looks like this. Keep serving. It's not a race to climb the corporate ladder. It's not a, grace, a race to get the most influence and authority. It's a race to serve. He who wants to be great will become a slave. Guys, and this is the truth that Stephen was believing. He didn't fight, he didn't say, hey, I wanna be a pastor. Hey, I want more leadership in that. No, he humbly and graciously received his position in his life and chose to serve. And then look what happens in verse seven of chapter six. It said, so the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. All right, so because everyone was playing their part, because they were doing what they were supposed to do, the gospel began to spread. All right, it wasn't in spite of the fact that people like Stephen were doing lowly things, it was because of the fact. Guys, every single person in this room has a part to play in the kingdom of God. From the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you do not have to wait to get in the game. Day one, he calls you, there is a place for you because it's not your position that matters, it's your power. And the power you have from the very moment you put your faith in Jesus, God gives you his Holy Spirit living inside you to give you the strength to serve. Power in the kingdom of God isn't about your position. It's about the Holy Spirit inside of you. 
All right, and because of that, when you get a room full of people like there was there that are just living in the spirit, being willing to serve, the gospel spreading like wildfire. Like it's seriously going crazy. They said some priests were being come obedient to the faith. These were like the Christians who thought they were Christians, realized they weren't actually Christians and came to know Jesus. Like this thing is going everywhere. It's reaching people in the churches. And so this is going wild. And look what happens next. Acts 6, verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, there it is again, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking." All right, so Stephen, he's just living his life. He's fulfilling his role as serving the windows, widows, and he's like performing signs and wonders. I don't know all that meant. They said that about Jesus too. Maybe he was healing people. Maybe he was multiplying the bread. Maybe he was prophesizing or raising from the dead. I don't know, but he was going wild. All right, and as a result, he developed this following. The gospel was spreading and he faced opposition. Opposition from who? From the synagogue leaders. And if you guys were at the Send retreat this last weekend, Dan Nemers talked about these synagogue leaders. He had a name for them. Who remembers the name? Idiots or Christian buttheads. There we go. All right. The Christian buttheads, they're back again. These synagogue leaders are against Stephen. And they, what do they try to do? They try to argue with him. Which, guys, this is hilarious. This, like, freedmen synagogue, these are Jews who maybe used to be slaves that were freed that are coming in from, like, all over the world. All right, so these are, like, the top-level theologians and thinkers and scholars. They would have had the entire Old Testament memorized, all of these people. And they're combating, basically, the lunch lady of Christianity. And what does it say in verse 10? What does it say in verse 10? There we go. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom. Guys, these priestly scholars were trying to argue and unconvince Stephen of what he believed, and they were unable to do it. Guys, and it wasn't because Stephen was this great preacher. It wasn't because Stephen was the pastor or the apostle. He's the lunch lady. He was a regular, ordinary person living in the power of the Spirit. Stephen was an ordinary man, desperate to make much of his extraordinary God, and God used it. Guys, if God can use Stephen in this way, then he can use you in this way, even the lowliest of people. All right, and so their arguments don't work. They are unable to stand against them, and so what do they do? Look at verse 11. It says, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. And so they came, seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All right, and so they're arguing with him doesn't work. And so they bring false claims against him. They bring false witnesses and like somehow concoct this total sham of a court case where they bring Stephen before this religious authority and they condemn him for blasphemy. All right, and what are the two things that they say he's blaspheming? Against the law and against the temple. 
All right, and that might not mean much to you guys. I get it. We live in 2020. We don't really have like religious laws or temples anymore, but this would have been huge to them because what they were doing when they were, when they were accusing Stephen of blaspheming the law and the temple was they were saying that Stephen was attacking their way of salvation and their means of significance. The law to them was the means of salvation and the temple was their means of significance. You see, they were looking to the law, their obedience to the law that God gave Moses and saying, hey, we and our people, we obey that. That's why we're saved. And the temple, that was their means of significance. They say, look at this big temple we built for God. Look at us. We are these religious people that have built God this temple. That gives us significance. And so to charge Stephen speaking against those things, they're basically saying, Stephen, you are speaking against God and his word. That is a crime punishable by death in their eyes. And yet, what does it say about Stephen in 6.15? Look at it. It says, and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right, and this isn't an angel like little baby Cupid, all right? That is not a biblical picture of an angel. Actually, angels in the Bible are like these fearsome heavenly warriors that come down with like swords of flames and just this incredible frightening appearance. And when you see an angel, you know that they have been in the presence of God. In fact, over and over again in scripture, you see them and you know that they have a word from God. And so how ironic is it that they are like accusing this man of blaspheming the word of God. And yet when they look at him, he is radiating as though he is an angel that has the word of God. But that still doesn't stop him, all right? They are so enraged that he would attack what is so near and dear to them that they continue with the trial. Look at chapter seven, verse one. Are these things true? The high priest asked. All right, the high priest, he really doesn't care about truth in this moment. He's not like trying to get down to the bottom of what Stephen's teaching. He's not asking him, hey, explain yourself. Is there any truth in that? No, the only thing that the high priest cares about at this moment is proving that Stephen disagrees with them so he can kill him. He doesn't care if there's any validity or any truth in what Stephen's saying. The only thing he cares about is trying to get Stephen to admit that he disagrees. And the second he does that, he is condemned to death. And so how does Stephen respond? Well, guys, if you kind of just breeze over like the whole chapter seven, that is Stephen's response. The next like 58 verses is Stephen's response. And so he doesn't shy away. He doesn't hold back. He actually launches into a 50 verse, 1200 word, 10 minute sermon on why they are wrong and why they are dumb basically for believing what they're believing. And here's the thing, guys, if you are on death row, if somebody who is, has the spiritual authority to kill you asks you to give a defense, it seems like a totally dumb move to just go off with verse after verse telling them why they're wrong and why you disagree with them. It almost seems like a death wish for Stephen, right? Like why would he do that knowing that it was gonna result in his death? It's because Stephen knew that there was something more important than staying alive that day. Stephen knew that there was something more precious, more valuable to him than even his life. And even if it cost him his life, it would be worth that thing he was protecting. 
Guys, that is the person of Jesus Christ. See, Stephen had already made up his mind that he was going to lay down his life for Jesus. Guys, and this wasn't the first moment that Stephen chose to put his life on the altar. See, for years, Stephen had been willingly putting to death the desires of his flesh, choosing to like not have the high spiritual positions, but to serve in a lowly way. Stephen was living the martyr's life far before he was martyred. Stephen was already for years on end living the type of life where he laid down his life for the sake of the gospel. This is just the fruit of a life lived for Jesus. All right, and so we don't have time to dive into the whole thing, the whole sermon, it's 50 verses, but I do wanna pull out two specific things from this. All right, if you remember, Stephen was charged with blaspheming the law and the temple, and he actually deals with both of these accusations. And what Stephen does here is incredibly important with our lives today. All right, how Stephen responds to the Pharisees has immense importance for us because it teaches us not only how to share the gospel, but what truths of the Christian faith are worth dying for. It teaches us both how to share the gospel and what's worth dying for. All right, so he's charged with blaspheming the temple and the law. And first, he deals with the law. Look with me at Acts chapter 7. Verse 37, it says this. This is the Moses who said to Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. He is the one who in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, he received living oracles to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered a sacrifice to the idol and were celebrating what their hands had made. And so Stephen shows them an example. He says, hey, you guys are looking for salvation in the law. And you're saying that you and your people for decades have been saved because of your obedience. But then he takes them back to the very first moment the law was given to them and shows that actually them and their people had rejected it. In fact, the one thing that they were clinging to for salvation, which was obedience to the law, they didn't have that anymore. Stephen showed them over and over again that Israel's pattern wasn't to obey the law, but to reject it and that there was no salvation left for them in the law. All right, and so he just totally blows up what they think their salvation is in, but he's not done yet. He does address their faulty view of salvation, but he also addresses the source of their significance, what they're finding their hope in, and he moves on to the temple. Look at what Acts 7, 48 to 50 says. It says this about God, but the most high does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? God says, hey, I don't fit in that little house that you guys built for me. That temple that you guys are so proud of that you are trying to show to the world, look at us. 
we're significant. We have the holy place. We built this great temple for God. God says, I don't need that. You don't make me look good. I make you look good. Our God cannot be contained in a building. And these people were trying to bring God down and use him for their own significance and their own popularity in the world. And so Stephen just goes for it all. He doesn't hold back. He totally tears down their means of salvation and their means of significance, but he still isn't done. All right, and kind of like the crescendo of his entire sermon, like the final nail in the coffin, look at what he says in Acts chapter 7, 51. Stephen looks at them and he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of the angels and yet have not kept it. All right, guys, this is wild. You're probably wondering at this time, like, Stephen, can you even say that stuff in court? Like, this is not a soft sermon, all right? He is calling them names. He is throwing the worst type of religious accusations on them. This is not soft. He is meant to pack a tight punch here. He says, your fathers killed the prophets and you are worse than them because they killed the prophets, but you killed the one they were prophesying about, Jesus. Stephen basically tells him, hey, you killed the God you built this temple for. You are so proud and so boastful that you built this big temple for the God you say you love, and yet you killed his son when you crucified Jesus on the cross. Don't miss this. Stephen showed them not just how they were wrong, but how Jesus is better. All right, he does boldly declare that they were missing the point, that they had a bad understanding and that they were wrong. That's a very good thing to do. I know it can be scary, but we have to do that. Don't rob the gospel of its power. But he doesn't leave them there. He gives them the solution to their problem and that solution is Jesus. Because the radical truth of Christianity the truth in our Bibles that is worth not only living for, but dying for is that Jesus is God and salvation is found in Jesus alone. That's it. Those real truths, if those are real, if those are actually true, they are worth not only our entire lives lived for him, but also to die for. If you genuinely believe that those are true, those are truths worth dying for. And so Stephen dismantles their salvation and their significance. He said, these religious leaders, they were looking to the law for salvation, right? But Stephen shows them that the purpose of the law was not for them to get salvation, but for them to see their need for a savior. That's a huge difference. The law, the law that Moses gave us and the rules in the Bible and everything we see us is not a roadmap for how we can be perfect and get to heaven. All it's meant to do is show us that we are incapable of doing that on our own. The purpose of the law and the purpose of the rules in the Bible is to show us that we can't be perfect. 
is to whet our appetites and help us to understand that we need somebody who can follow the rules. We need somebody who can be perfect in our place and live the life we never could. And guys, that person is Jesus. These Pharisees, they just didn't see it. And Stephen was desperate to help them see it. He was willing to give up his own life so that they would understand that they need to trust in Jesus, not the law. And so he addresses their misunderstanding of salvation and he also addresses their issues of significance because Jesus not just fulfilled salvation for them, but he fulfilled their significance. They were looking to the temple, this big temple that was supposed to be God's place where he dwelled with them. And yet they were using that to bolster themselves and the temple was never meant to be about the people. It was meant to be about the God. All right, Jesus fulfills even the temple. Their desire to be significant, their desire to be known comes not from what their hands can build, but from what Jesus did for them. All right, and they needed to know both of those things. Both of those truths of the gospel, both a right view of salvation and a right view that Jesus is better than the things of this earth is crucial. All right, and these were really crucial in the, my, the life of my friend named Colby who came to know Jesus his freshman year at UNI. So how many of you guys either did live or currently live in Bender? Anybody? Yeah, Bender people. Those are my people. All right, so my freshman year, I lived on Bender's second floor. Any second floor Bender? Bender 203? Oh, I was 203. That would have been sweet. All right, so Bender 203, me and Josiah, my roommate from high school, we moved in there because the towers are kind of the party dorms. Um, we didn't want to party, we wanted to share Jesus. So we went in there and uh, there was some wild childs on our floor, let me tell you. And so it was just fun. And we were like desperately praying that God would do a work on this floor, that we would see many people come to know Jesus. And so we were doing anything and everything we could just to get around them, to build a relationship with them. And so we started this flag football team um, and Colby was on, and I shared a little bit of this story um, at the men's breakout at the center tree, but Colby, he was on our flag football team. And one night after flag football, I, we went back to Rialto together and uh, grabbed late dinner, which was fun. And he was just, I just asked him about his weekend and he was telling me this story about how he got just like hammered at Sharky's and took this girl home. And he was just like recounting this like epic weekend in his mind that he had. And um, I had been praying for him a long time and tried to share the gospel several times and was just done waiting. And so I was like, dude, Sharky's, that's wild. Uh, sharky, sharks swim in water. Jesus walked on water. What do you think about Jesus? And he was like, what? I was like, okay, sorry, that was super weird. I know we just hard left there. I was like, but, but it's like, while we're on it though, seriously though, what do you think about Jesus? And it was great. He was like, actually, I kind of grew up going to church and he begins to like share me his faith like story. And he's like, honestly, I'm just trying to be a good enough person that I think God will accept me. And I was like, dude, I would love to talk more about that. And so for the next three weeks, I was like, can we just sit down and read the book of John? And as we sat down over the next few weeks, we talked about a right view of salvation that it's not by works, but that it's by faith in Jesus alone. It's not what we do, but what Jesus has done for us. And finally, after like a month, he came to the place where it's like, I get that. I can't be good enough. I need Jesus to die for me. I'm like, sweet. Do you want to accept that? Do you want to put your faith in that? He's like, I don't know. I was like, what's your biggest obstacle? And he goes, honestly, Andrew, if I have to give up getting drunk and taking girls home, I don't know that I want to follow Jesus. 
And so Colby was in the position of not only, he had a right understanding of salvation, but the second part is also crucial that Jesus is better than those things, that his desires would never be fulfilled. And so I asked him, I was like, Colby, what's the real reason? Like, what do you like about like taking girls home and going to the bars besides just that it's fun? He's like, honestly, Andrew, when I'm drunk, I forget about my problems. And when I take girls home, it makes me feel like I'm powerful. Like I have some sort of significance that I could win a girl to me. It boosts my self-esteem. And I just asked him like, Colby, do those things actually satisfy you the next day? Or do you crave more and more? He's like, honestly, I don't know why I keep going back because if we're being real, those things don't do it. And it was in that moment that I was like, Colby, Jesus fulfills those desires. Those desires for significance, for belonging, to forget about your problems, they're not bad desires. They're just fulfilled in Jesus. And it wasn't until that Colby saw that not only Jesus was the God of his salvation, but the God that could provide him satisfaction and significance that then he put his faith and trust in Jesus. And two months later was baptized in the WRC pool because Candeo didn't have another baptism service. So guys, it was awesome. But like the Pharisees, all right, the law wasn't bad. The temple wasn't bad, but they weren't an end of themselves. Both of those things were meant to point to Jesus and both of those aspects of the gospel are crucial. All right, and so Stephen preached that boldly. He was convinced that Jesus is the way of salvation and the way of satisfaction. He was willing to put his life on the line and look what their response is. Acts 7, 54. It says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth at him. I don't really know what gnashing teeth looks like, but it's probably not good. <laughs> ah, that'd be weird. <laughs> All right, they gnashed their teeth, whatever that looked like. So they're not ready to kill him yet, but look at what it says in 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God, of Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears together and rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. What was their response? They wanted to kill him. Stephen had dismantled their means of salvation and their means of significance, and they hated him for it. But what was Stephen's response while he was being dragged away to be stoned? Stephen doesn't fight back. He doesn't try to run away. He doesn't try to overpower the people that were killing him. Why not? Why wouldn't he preach against him? Why wouldn't he try to get away? Because what Stephen preached with his mouth, it was now time for him to seal with his blood. The words that Stephen preached that Jesus is the only way of salvation and Jesus is the only way of salvation, those words that he preached, he was willing to seal with his life. Guys, and as he was being dragged away, he knew that his life was coming to an end. What did God show him? He showed him a picture of Jesus in heaven. 
And when Stephen saw that amazing picture, Jesus not sitting but standing next to the throne of God to honor his son that was about to come into him, Stephen realized in that moment that he wasn't making a sacrifice. He was just trading earthly trash for heaven's greatest treasure. Guys, when you see that picture of Jesus standing next to the throne of God in all his glory and all his beauty and all his wonder, the things of this earth do not matter. I'm sure that as Stephen was being dragged away to his death, there may have been thoughts about family or relationships or things he wanted to accomplish or getting his affairs in order or whatever. Guys, but when he saw Jesus standing right, right at the right hand, one who had been killed before him, one who had already been killed for his sins, Stephen's response was, forgive them, Lord. Take my spirit. Guys, what a story. Our God is that great that you could give up everything in your life to follow him and it would still be worth it. Guys, Stephen was just an ordinary man. There was nothing special about him. He was just a man that believed in the power God gave him and was willing to die for the truths of scripture. Will you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this story of Stephen. I thank you that in this, you teach us that you are not just the God of our, your, our salvation, but the God of our satisfaction. Jesus, that there is salvation in no other name under heaven except yours, Jesus. I pray that that truth would shake us to our core, that we would be so rocked by that truth that we would be willing to give everything for that to be true of our own lives and to make that known. Jesus, there is a room full of people right now that I am so excited to look out and see that they are filled with your spirit. God, if you can use Stephen, you can use this room. If you are using one man's story thousands of years later to win people to you and to show them your worthiness, what might you do with a room this size of people that have that same spirit? God, I ask that you would do a powerful work in our students' lives and that we would be like Stephen, incredibly ordinary people that are make much of our extraordinary God. Jesus, we love you and I pray this in your name, amen.